0: Live from the JL in London, join us for 20 minutes weekly with Rabbi Dr Akiva Tetz, hosted by myself, Mena Reisner, as we delve into the hottest topics of the 21st century. From the origins of the universe, vaccine conspiracies, genetics and Jewish law, relationships, and everything in between. You are listening to Conversations with Rabbi Tatz. Welcome back, Rabbi Tatz. Great to sit with you again. Thank you very much for agreeing to do this. We've had a bit of a break due to some technical glitches, but thank God we're back. Today is going to be a very pressing issue, which has been requested by many people, which is to talk about Chinuch, education, education of the children. We're, we're living in a generation of very challenging times and especially challenging to bring up children in a world that we have access to everything in a scary world. Parents need a bit of guidance on how to navigate from issues with the media all the way to gender identity, things that we've never really experienced before. So Rabbi Tetz, can I ask you to speak a bit about Chinuch in 2021?
1: Yes, first of all, thank you very much for inviting me again to do a few sessions on Jewish issues in the contemporary world. Yes, child raising, you say education, and I think you mean child raising in general, not narrowly the education in the school system. So let's talk about some of the principles from a Jewish point of view that underlie healthy raising of healthy children in a world fraught with difficulty blowing in the winds, if you like, of social change, children exposed to everything on the media today many many changes just one that comes to mind just to set the tone a teacher told us recently teacher of PE physical education she can't get the children to try anything new they will not try anything new why every child is concerned if they fall and look ridiculous they'll be videoed and photographed and instantly and forever on the internet will be embarrassing pictures of them in some awkward position that they'll never escape and therefore, they're not prepared to put themselves into any situation because, and the, the default position is today that whatever is happening, no matter how intimate, it's being photographed, basically photographed in glorious surround sound, you know, color and so on. So this is just one of the examples of the things that are, and of course, we've seen children seriously affected by the threat of the media intrusion all the way, unfortunately, to suicides. So it's always been a fraught area, raising children. But today we face, I wouldn't necessarily say worse or more dangers and difficulties, but certainly unique ones to the generation. Let's go back and lay down some of the basic principles of child raising and education from a Jewish point of view. And when Talmud talks about this, it talks not only about raising children, it also talks about the master-disciple relationship. So the principles that govern a healthy parent-child relationship also govern a healthy teacher-student relationship. But let's narrow our focus down to parents and children. Later, if there's time, we'll broaden it to the rabbi-disciple relationship or the teacher-child relationship or teacher-student relationship as well. But the principles will be the same. And finally, I'd like to touch a little bit on not only what is the correct teaching methodology, but what do you want the child to gain? What is your result? What are you looking for? What sort of personality are you looking for? What sort of well-adjusted young individual are we hoping to nurture by this methodology? As always, we go back to the Torah and here the Talmud makes a statement, a bold statement that purports to contain all that we need for educational psychology. And pithy, brief, but I believe if we study it deeply, we can evolve a system, a comprehensive system of education. And here's what the Talmud says. It says, Very, very terse and brief statement. Let your left hand always push away and your right hand draw near. That's the cryptic, esoteric statement in the Talmud. Let your left hand push away, and let your right hand draw near. Well, to understand what this means, let's try to decode it. We know that in Jewish thinking, Jewish philosophy, and Kabbalistic thinking, the right hand always denotes chesed, or kindness, or unlimited giving, unconditional unlimited giving, and the left denotes discipline, fear, borders, limitations, what we call Din. So in a formal sense the right represents chesed or kindness, the left represents din or discipline, the very opposite of the right hand side. Just to go into this a little bit more deeply, the right or chesed doesn't only mean loving kindness and goodness, it means unlimited giving. To illustrate that I point out to you that the Torah uses the word chesed for sexual immorality as well. It doesn't mean good or bad. It means unlimited giving. What is immorality? Not knowing where to say no. It's giving intensely and intimately, but everywhere. So when the Torah says, Ki chesed, who is talking about immorality. But the point is that chesed means an unlimited giving. That's the right-hand side. Incidentally, which is not our subject directly now, that is regarded as being the male side. The male. The male is giving unconditional and unlimited. Uh, we, We know that when the male acts in conception, the male contributes billions of seed. The woman is the discipline side, only one egg. So the left-hand side that we call, we call the left the female, that is called gvura or din. Gvura means setting boundaries, defining what will be. You know, it's very interesting that the ultimate male is a father. The father is the male that begins the process. And the Hebrew word for a father is av. There's no more basic word in Hebrew than that, can bet. You can't, you can't get more basic than that. Just the very beginning and that's all. The word for a mother in Hebrew is im. Aleph, the first letter, and then Mem, the middle letter of the alphabet. So she extends it on, and then of course beyond her the child must grow. The word aim, which means a mother in Hebrew, also means im, which means if, conditional, it's up to her. She sets the conditions. The father begins the process with a blast of unlimited energy. The mother conditions what will be manifest. So the right-hand side is chesed, unlimited giving. The left-hand side is limitation or borders or what we call discipline or din. Obviously, when we're talking about raising a child, what we are saying here is the child needs a combination of unlimited, unconditional outpouring of love and very strict discipline as well. That's the Jewish formula. Notice that it says, let your left hand push away before it says, let your right hand draw near means that our educational philosophy is to set up boundaries and rules and discipline and a healthy framework before we start pouring in the unconditional love. That's our order of business. But the truth is they both need to be manifest together. So our educational agenda as a parent for a child, this could be a very young child, it could be a teenager, and later, as I hope to show, this applies also to a rabbi and disciple or master and disciple, the two modes of operation that you need are unconditional love, tremendous unconditional love and yet a very clear system of boundaries discipline and framework that is structured that's the thinking now let's go into this a bit more deeply the first problem obviously is how do you put together these two opposites on the one hand you have unlimited giving unconditional love does that mean when the child asks for a 13th helping of ice cream you say yes as well unconditionally and the problem, of course, is how do you manifest very strict discipline, yet give the child a message of love as well? That's a challenge. It's a big challenge. First of all, in depth, in theory, we know that the two harmonize in a middle point that we call Tiferes. This is not the time to go into the philosophy or the Kabbalistic angle on that. But the midpoint between, or the, the balancing point, if you like, the point of combination between the right hand and the left is the center. And that's the perfect balance between the two. Let me illustrate this in practice. When the rain falls, it's called chesed. The rain falls; the water makes everything grow. That's a chesed. But of course, if it doesn't fall, if it falls with no limit, it's a flood and destroys everything. So it's critical that the rain stop at the right moment. If the rain stops too soon, you don't have enough growth. If the rain stops too late, you have a flood. The critical judgment of when that kindness must end—that is an unbelievable spiritual quality called tiferous, and that is where parental judgment comes in. At which point do you stop the giving so that the giving remains a giving? You allow the rain to fall too much, you wash away everything in a flood. On the other hand, if you stint on the giving, you don't give enough, you have deprived the child of the love that they need. And that, unfortunately, has no formula. The formula for unlimited giving, very easy, just give everything, say yes to everything. The formula for discipline, say no to everything, absolute cruelty and limitation. The trouble is, how do you balance the two? And that's an art and a skill and experience exactly which is the right moment and mothers in my experience are often better at this they understand the child's mentality and emotion more deeply than a father usually are more empathic usually have more insight this is the reason why mothers are more important in the early years as the talmud says fathers become important later but it's a question of judgment as to exactly what is the right amount of giving and uh, what is the right, right amount of discipline i just to give you a practical pointer here the right balance is different for every child you know, when children say, why did he get a bigger piece of cake than me? You know, why, why has he got a different bedtime than me? Children have an inflamed sense of fairness. So you buy a blue one for him and a pink one for her. For sure she'll want the blue and he'll want the pink. I tell you, if you buy them both a pink one, they'll both want each other's, you know, because uh, that's how children are. They've got an inflamed sense of what's fair. The right answer to that question for a parent is, in this house, we don't get the same. We each get what we need. The reason he got more cake and you got less, the reason his bedtime is different than yours, that's what he needs and that's what you need. That's how God deals with us after all. God doesn't give us all the same. He gives each of us what we need. And therefore, the right answer to a child is, in this house, we are fair. Fair doesn't mean you all get the same. Fair means each of you gets exactly what you need. That is the difficult art of balancing the right hand and the left hand. Let's spend a few moments clarifying the two sides. Yes, it will be difficult to find the balance. That will take skill and experience. And some point in the future, we can perhaps talk about that a bit more. But let's clarify the two sides. Since the Talmud starts with the left-hand side, let's talk about that. Note that the left is not the more important. Discipline is not the more important. By far, the more important is the love. There's no question about that. In fact, every aspect of discipline must be clearly seen to be out of love. When the mother says no to that 13th helping of ice cream, it must be because I love you, not because I'm depriving you. No question about that. That's why the verse says, the world is built on kindness, not built on discipline. But as I pointed out, the fact that the rain stops falling at the right time is every bit as much a manifestation of love as the fact when the rain stops is every bit as much a manifestation of love as when it falls. And therefore, when you say no to a child, it has to be, incidentally, when a parent says no to a child, it pays to bear in mind that the tone of voice should be a tone of love. When you say no, If you say no because you're frustrated and the child wore you down and you explode, that's not good. But if you say no because it's not good for you, you need to be quiet now, not because I can't stand the noise, but because you need to learn what it means to be quiet at the right time. It's a completely different tone of voice. Of course, a parent shouldn't stint on the discipline because they're slightly out of control. Of course not, the discipline is important. But it's important to tell the child the reason I'm saying no, the reason I'm setting limits is only because I love you, not because I want to deprive you. Let's talk for a moment about the left-hand side. What does discipline mean? First of all, it means setting up a framework of rules that is structured. It's a very interesting psychological fact that children thrive within a sense of a framework and discipline. I'm not saying they like it, but they appreciate it and it gives them a sense of security. You know, Rabbi Menna, it's interesting to know that we view discipline as necessary not only for behavior, but also for intellect. When children function in a disciplined and organized, structured framework, it isn't only good for their behavior and their self-control. It's also good for their minds. Let me point out to you that the truth is always limited. Falsehood is unlimited. How many right answers are there to a mathematical problem? One. How many wrong answers? Many as you want. Therefore, intellectual power always requires discipline. Of course, we want our children to think creatively. Indeed, we want them to think out of the box. Indeed, we want them to learn how to break rules where appropriate, but always in pathways that are true. And therefore, a disciplined thinker always has the sense of discipline. Mathematics, any of the sciences that you care to name, always moves in paths of what is possible and what is not. There's always a structure and a framework. And therefore, we set up that structure to give children a sense of protection and a sense of organization, and that's very important. Children also understand naturally that there are rules. When your child says, why do I have to do that? If you start giving philosophical answers, you'll definitely lose the argument. Even the two-year-old can outmaneuver you and has much more stamina than you. If you start arguing with the three-year-old, for sure you're going to lose. There's no mm. question. Your stamina, your patients will wear thin, but the three-year-olds will not. And therefore, the right answer to difficult children when they are being difficult is not to give them a philosophical explanation. The reason is, it's a rule in this house. That they can't answer. That they can't argue with. If you start giving them religious reasons or moral reasons or any other logical reason, they'll have very, very good answers to your assertions. But if you say, I'm sorry, it's a rule, there's nothing they can say. When they're old enough to ask you why is it a rule in this house, (laughs) it's far too late. (laughs) And at that stage, the correct answer is because it's my house. When a child says to you, Why do I have to do this? Why do I have to come to dinner with a shirt on or sober? Or whatever the child's particular problem, if you start giving Rationale, you will not win that discussion. Of course, you can give rationale and you ought to give rationale when it's not an issue at times of love and, and good communication. But when a child's acting out, that's not the time to give explanations. And the fact that it's a rule in this home will not work either. There's one last resort in situations like that it's my home. When you go to a Japanese house, you take your shoes off. In this house, you come to dinner with your shirt on, whatever the rule may be. No shirt, no dinner. You can say to the child, when you get grow up and you leave, you can do whatever you want in your home. This is my home. I don't have to give a rationale. <laughs> and that, of course, that's simple respect. It's my house with so these other rules. I don't justify them to you. When you set up your own home, follow your own rules. That is the way to get around those issues. So we set up a framework of discipline. It's noteworthy that children naturally fit in to the discipline. What I mean is they always push against the rules, but they understand that they're necessary. When your child comes to you and says, you know, it's eight o'clock at night. It's my bedtime. I think I'll go to bed. Take his temperature. He's got a fever. You know, that's (laughs) not normal. But they understand that there is a bedtime and there is a rule. You can break the rules too under controlled circumstances. You can say, look, your grandmother's coming over tonight. You can stay up an extra hour. But you never, ever break a rule because the child wore you down to break the rule. And here's the golden rule about rules. If there's a firm rule, you can never, ever, not once, afford to break the rule because the child wore you down. And there's something very highly motivating about this for parents. If you never do that, the child will not push the boundaries. If you do it once, you've lost it forever. Let me give you an illustration. You know Rabbi Lerner, who's a wonderful teacher and a teacher of ours, and he often comes to teach here in the JLE. He's a psychotherapist as well as a rabbi. Rabbi Lerner told me that he was once in Bondi Beach in Australia when he was living there in a, a general dealer grocery store when he saw a religious Jewish woman come in with her child and the woman began doing some shopping. The child went over to the sweets, took some sort of sweet or candy, gave to his mother am said, to I want this. mother looked at it and said, this is not kosher. Without a word, the child put it back. Then the child took a packet of crisps, came back to his mother, I want this. She said, look, there's no hechsher on this, it's not kosher. The child put it back, not a word. Then the child noticed a Hasidic man who came into the shop, went over to the kosher sweets area, and said, bought, I bought a whole lot of kosher stuff. Kid went over to the kosher rack, took a chocolate, came back to his mother and said, look, Emma, I want this. She said, look, this is kosher, it's true, but we don't get sweets before lunch. Kid lay down on the floor and had a fit, foamed at the mouth, kicked and screamed, went blue, held his breath. You know. <laughs> now my learner said he looked at his watch to see how long the woman would last. 90 seconds of sweating and shaking, she bought the chocolate. What's the message? The message is an unbroken rule The rule, no matter what you do, you're not going to get unconscious food. It's not worth losing consciousness and foaming at the mouth. But food before lunch, that's a breakable rule. And the child's got much more stamina. He can lie on the floor till he goes blue and loses consciousness and foams. No problem with that. He can take it. You can't. And therefore, the rule is, and you know, you see this with adults too. You know, people who smoke, for example, when it comes Shabbat, not a problem. Not a problem. The minute Shabbat's out, they're, they, you know, gasping and panting. They run for their cigarette. But when it's unbreakable, it's unbroken. And therefore, the first thing for parents to know is that the rules need to be firm. You can never afford to break them down. You can say there's an exception. You can say you made a mistake, absolutely. But you never break a rule because the child broke you down. Should one deliberately
0: make exceptions every now and again to give the child a, a treat?
1: Yes, I think that's a question of judgment how you do that. I'll stick my neck out and say... In my own home, we've often allowed a child to stay home from school occasionally when we see they need it. Of course, it has to be done judiciously, but to know that they're not locked into a prison system, and when they need a little bit of freedom of expression, yes, I think that's very, very good. But I personally think that staying home from school occasionally is improvement on your education very often, <laughs> be that as it may. Could be because um, you're the dad. <laughs> <laughs> that's probably true. That's probably true. But be that as it may, yes, yes, I have, a, I have a sister-in-law who's a teacher, and she says she notices when the parents drop the kids off at school. She notices when the parents walk away, there's a spring in their step. <laughs> <laughs> That's true. Yeah. That's true. But be that as it may. The second point is that the rules must be appropriate no need to make unnecessary rules. You know, Rabbi Mena, we say no to so many things, we have to say no to so many things. In the religious world, we say no to more things. And therefore, there's no need to say no to more than you need to. And therefore, the rules need to be appropriate. If it's a very small child, the rules need to govern what is dangerous. Is to that keep because them protected the child will say, well, but you don't all the other kids in my class don't have that, that rule? Is Indeed, not only that, on the contrary, the the child will even compare themselves to people outside their social circle. You may have a religious child who's got non-religious cousins and and, and relatives, and so they've got all sorts of illicit things that this child would like, and between you and me, some of those things are a lot of fun and very glitzy and attractive, and your child doesn't have them, whether it's non-kosher things or food or whatever it is. And therefore, we need to make our children feel privileged and gifted and not you saying no to absolutely everything. So that's one issue. Another issue is what happens when the system is antithetical to your own values. You send a child to school. Perhaps the school has rules that you don't feel are necessary. The important point to remember here is that no school, unfortunately, is perfect. And no community is perfect. I hate to say this, but it's very important to say you will never find for you and your family a perfect community, by which I mean a synagogue, a shul, a broader community. You'll never find a perfect one. And you will never find a perfect school unfortunately the formula is to find the best you can and then respect it and send the child with the message of respect you can't send a child to a school and then badmouth the teacher and say insulting things about the school that's completely wrong so what you do is you find the best you can you fit in you observe the rules you obey them because that's the, the community of the school has decided but in the privacy of your own sanctified zone your own little bubble of security in your home for your family you set the values and the tone of integrity and the level of values that you want. Children very soon realize that we have our own set of rules of integrity and values and we adjust to a world that doesn't necessarily have them. We have to do that adjustment all the time anyway. And therefore, children quite readily recognize this school might be more strict than we are about certain things or more lenient than we are certain things. But we respect that. and We don't come into friction with the system. But we, in our own private zone, And it's a very important little bubble of security where children know that the parents are absolutely reliable and this is where our trust is built Uh, if i may I just add one more detail a jew has to be like that in general you have to have an inner world of absolute purity but an outer world of very shrewd protection against a cruel world
0: yeah when a child comes home from school i'm sure this uh, happens a lot it's definitely happening in my own home and complains about the teacher should the focus be on protecting the school and and sort of making them more rigid about the school or should one be fully supportive and
1: yes i think the default position is to back the teacher up and start there unfortunately teachers are not perfect and therefore it takes a little wisdom and insight and research to see maybe the child is making a valid point so there's no blanket rule for that My daughter, who's a teacher, said that uh, one of the first things they realized in COVID is that she said when the children were staying home for a few weeks, she said a lot of parents are going to see, it wasn't the teacher. (laughs) (laughs) Some would say the teachers brought around COVID for that. (laughs) (laughs) It wasn't the teacher. And another thing she says, which I I find very amusing, is that she says she deals with these teenagers in her classroom. And then she's on parents' evening. When the parents visit for the first time, she says, all is explained. (laughs) She meets the parents, all becomes clear. Anyway, the next thing I would say is this, that children function within the rules if you set them wisely and they affirm. Here's a story about a teacher, a very wise lady teacher in Israel, was working in a classroom of disturbed children. Children with serious issues. And a 10 year old boy in her class climbed up in the window and tried to jump out. The second floor of the building, disturbed child. And um, she was the front of the classroom. The child climbed up and was about to jump out the window. There's no way she could cross the classroom in time to save the child's life. But this is a very mature, experienced teacher. So immediately, in a very stern voice, she said, Atal lo yachol. She said in Hebrew, You can't do that. Where's your note from the headmaster? The child climbed down. He didn't know you needed a note to jump out the window. (laughs) And in that moment, she grabbed him. That's very interesting. In other words, yeah. you know, he's about to jump out the window, but yeah, there's a rule you need. <laughs> you have to bring a note that the That was head, the right? absolute rule. That was a wow. rule. So that was a moment of genius. So in summary, what we've talked about in this session is that we believe in Judaism in very, very firm rules. After all, God sets rules for us. They're for our good. It's clear. And in relationships, we have rules and discipline and limitations. Children need to know that they exist in the secure zone of a very, very firm set of wise and loving rules, borderlines, discipline, respect for parents in a certain way. This is not a limitation. If it's done correctly, wisely, with a light touch and with a tone of love and respect, that is where we begin our discussion.
0: Fantastic. Thank you very much, Robert. I looking forward to take up next week to discuss the other half, which is the Yamin Makarevis, the giving right hand and possibly we'll be following that with an episode on Q&A with regarding to bringing up children. So you can send your questions into podcasts at uk. We're looking forward to hear from you. Thank you very much, all right Tats. My pleasure.